chicken poop is still revered as like the best fertilizer in the world. I mean, it's better than anything Monsanto has been able to figure out in 33 years. Hey everyone, I'm Morgan, co-founder of Primal Kitchen and host of the Primal Kitchen podcast. Today I'm talking about an important topic with marine turned farmer, Paul Grieve, and that's regenerative farming. As conventional farming and agriculture continue to disregard healthy soil practices and take efficiency and yield above morality, it's farmers like Paul that are making a difference in going back to basics. Paul founded Pasture Bird after being plagued by Lyme disease from his time in the service, going paleo and discovering the benefit of eating real food. He could no longer go back to eating conventional meat. What started out as a family joke became a booming business, and he's here to tell us all about it. Before we get started, a brief reminder that any and all opinions and views shared by hosts and guests on this podcast are the speaker's own and do not represent the view of Primal Kitchen or its affiliates or parent company. Hey, Paul. Hey, wow. What a great write-up. Did you do that? No, Janessa did. Shout out to Janessa. She's awesome. I'll send it to you. Copy of that. that. Yeah, we'll happily pass that along. Um, a lot of big words in there for me though. So I tell her to make it the next one easier. Okay. So fill us in you. This is so awesome. We've kind of like known each other through mutual friends and family of yours, um, from the early days. I know like Mark was a kind of maybe in influential when you guys were getting off the ground, but I want to know like the full story because this is epic what you guys are doing here. Yeah. It's, it's weird that we haven't formally like connected yet. I feel like we probably should have met at something or at some I point. Agree. Oh. I agree. Yeah. Um, no, it's, it's a very random way that we got into farming. It was not like second, third, fourth generation. Basically I had um, Lyme disease in the Marine Corps and during sniper school, I got bit with a tick when I was out in the field and um, just started getting really bad brain fog and fatigue. And um, how long 2000... did it take for you to get diagnosed with Lyme disease? So you get this, like when you get a tick bite, normally they just go away after a little while, but I had 77 tick bites on my body coming out of the field. Cause we're like laying there in the backwoods of Virginia for three days and trying not to move kind of Does thing. Everyone you know? get Lyme disease. This sounds crazy. No, but everybody has a lot of tick bites. It's just which one happens to have Lyme on it, you know? Oh God. And so you, you get this like bullseye uh, right. thing that just starts to grow and grow. And I was like, ah, it's whatever. It's no big deal. And then it started going towards like, it was on my thigh and it was going towards my knee and it was like going towards my junk. And I was like, okay, it's time to go get this checked out. You know, uh, yeah. the guy was like, yeah, you definitely got Lyme disease. So it was, um, it was really weird. I, mean, I was a college athlete, like Marine, all this stuff. I started just feeling crappy at 22, 23 years old. And it was 07. And this is when like paleo CrossFit started getting really big inside of the Marine Corps, inside of the military and the SEAL community and stuff like that. So just started eating differently and started feeling really good. And I was like, wow, it was the first time I ever thought the way that you eat actually does affect the way that you feel. And so went to Iraq, came home and my family was all sort of like joking. We we're spending all this money on farmer's market, grass-fed beef and all this stuff. And we're like, dude, we should just get some chickens for our backyard, you know? And yeah. um, my brother-in-law he disappeared from the room. We were just messing around. You know, he came back like 10 minutes later and he goes, Oh yeah. Hey, by the way, I just ordered those 50 chickens are going to be here in like two weeks. And we're like, just like, dude, what are you, are you kidding me? Like, I don't know how to raise chicken. And I grew up in downtown Seattle. Yeah. Where are you? Uh, we were living in Newport beach and um, my in-laws were out in Temecula, which is like kind of a small town outside of Southern California, like in Southern California, but a little ways away from the coast and stuff. So, yeah. um, Got 50 chickens, put them in the backyard. We geeked out on this guy, Joel Salatin, that was doing 
all the livestock were mobile and moving all the time. So had to be in stationary. And we just th- thought that was like so cool. Um, and yeah, we got the iPad out, raised the birds and started like processing them in the backyard. And, um, we basically told our friends and family that we were doing it. And all 50 birds were like reserved by friends and family within the first two weeks or something. And so we were like, the family was all mad at me that I sold all the chickens. So the next month we did a hundred and then 200 and then 500. And now, I don't know, we're, we're the biggest pasture poultry producer kind of by far now in the, in the world. That's so cool. So you were in Newport when you bought these chickens, right? Is that but, yeah, I was living in Newport Beach, but my in-laws were out in Temecula. So but we you always had the chickens in Temecula. They just exactly. Okay, got exactly. It, got it. And yeah. for a second, I thought you even had 50 birds in Newport. And I was like, what, where were you living in Newport that you could have? <laughs> we used to get that question all the time. I'd be like, yeah, we're doing farming. And they're like, where do you have acreage in Corona Del Mar? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, got it. So you put them out at your in-laws. Yeah. Yeah. Raised them up, did the butchering and all that stuff all ourselves. And the birds were like so tasty and so good. And we're just excited about um, this idea of like raising them on pasture instead of raising them inside of a chicken coop where they're all living on their own crap all the time. You know, it was a, it was this really cool thing. And then 2013 um, is when we connected with Mark actually. So we did this Kickstarter. Remember like Kickstarter was this thing back in the day. For sure. Uh, and we were doing this Kickstarter and we we're trying to get to like 40,000. We we're like 35. And I emailed Mark and I was like, hey, dude, can we just do something with you guys? You know, and he's like, why don't you write an article about how you went from like cubicle life to farming, you know? And so I wrote it on um, like a guest post on Primal Blueprint, I think, or what was it called? Mark Daily Apple. Mark Daily Apple. Apple. Yeah. Um, and that brought us to like 60 grand overnight. We we're like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. You know, and so <laughs> I love it. We're kind of like always grateful to Mark for helping us get the farm off the ground and everything. That's and then, great. Uh, I didn't know that. That's really Yeah, cool. it was just it was super cool. We did some more stuff with Mark's Daily Apple back in the day and everything. And uh and then around that time we got hit up by um the the Lakers. So Kate Shanahan, who's at MD, was yeah. formerly like a nutritionist for the Lakers. And back when Kobe and Steve Nash and all those guys were getting towards the end of the career, they got really into eating real food and trying to eat clean and make bone broth all the time and stuff. So Kate went out and tried to source the best um, meat for them. And they ended up coming down to the farm and like touring. And so they became our first ever like wholesale customer. Cause before we were always just selling direct to consumer, you know, yeah, that's crazy. and then um, Gabe Kepler was a strength and conditioning coach for the Dodgers. And he found out what Kate was doing. So then of course the Dodgers had to have the best stuff too. And so we found ourselves working with like, these two awesome sports franchises and then really started going into like um, a lot of the best chefs and restaurants in um, San Francisco and in uh, LA and San Diego after that. It's so interesting because to me, like if, if I look at Primal Kitchen, right? Like the mayonnaise, you never, we never went to restaurants first because it's not like a menu item. Like you don't, yeah it's hard to get like primal kitchen mayonnaise on the menu, right? So people don't pay up for condiments like that, but it's very interesting how some of these like super high end, like meat products can attract that like restaurant client before you're even in, you're just launching into retail now, right? Like you guys have been direct to consumer this whole time. 10 years in, we're finally getting ready to go into like fresh retail. I mean, it's so hard in chicken because chicken has a 17 day shelf life from the time that you kill it until the time the person has to eat it, which means it's got to go through the slaughterhouse and distribution and retail and the, the customer. So it's like, um, we and did only out of, 
Yeah, that's for refrigerated. Okay. Exactly. You know, frozen's easy. Like frozen, right. you know, we can just stick it in the freezer and sit on it as long as we need to. Um, but the fridge was, it's so hard to break into. It's so complex. I mean, you know, the dynamics of retail, even in a shelf stable product, trying to do that with fresh, it's taken us years to get to that point. And we did the chefs only because it's just a lot easier business. You, yeah. know, you basically don't have to slot it and brand it and package it. It's like, give them really good product out of the gate and then, and then you're good. We cut our teeth in the restaurant business for like six years, probably. Um, it's not actually where I think the product will really do its best. It's just that was the only capability we really had early yeah. on. And why not? Why didn't you go frozen? Well, that's the direct business. There's not a huge demand within um, within like the fresh case. So if you're going to buy like a whole chicken, you know, you don't usually see that frozen in like a grocery yeah. store. It'll be wings or it'll be, you know, like um, chicken tenders or different things in the frozen case. I'm actually like really interested to see if we can break into the frozen in grocery. That's actually what I want to talk to Primal Kitchen about doing a collab for grocery. I think that'd be sick. Yeah, we should definitely chat about that. We'd love to. Yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean, 90 day shelf life is hard to execute. I know that from my days of working in the kombucha business, the brand called Kavita and the short, I mean, I don't, they didn't even have 90 days, but like 45 days is impossible. 17 is like crazy. I mean, Yeah. 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 The amount of just like management you need to get it the five days to get to the distribution center. And then the orders would need to come and it would need to ship out within two days in order to make it so that there has a week on it before. I didn't realize it was so small for. Well, think about this too. So we have, you know, three weeks to hatch a chicken and then six, seven weeks to grow one out. So you're like on the hook for 10 weeks of production coming in too. And that production can do better or worse, depending on how the birds grow out and the weather and all these different factors. So it's like, there's a lot that goes into planning it. I mean, it's a big reason why we decided to partner up with somebody because we kind of figured out how to raise chickens on pasture pretty well, but we do not know all the ins and outs of fresh distribution, logistics, plant, you know, it was, we needed to partner with somebody that really like knew that side of the business. Yeah. makes sense. So your first year, you just for selling to friends and family, it sounds like. And then what? Like, Yeah. So we went into like drop sites for a while where we would freeze product and people would order online. We would drive around. You know, we have like these crazy stories about for a while, there were nine of us living in 1700 square feet, like all trying to get this farm thing off the road. And we would go out to Hertz and we would like rent cars for the day. We would tell all our customers like, hey, meet us at this parking lot or whatever. And like everybody would go and you'd get there and then half the time you wouldn't have the right stuff. And it was just, it was like insane, you know? Um, and then FedEx started getting better and better. So we got to the point where we could actually ship directly to people. Uh, and then the fresh business kind of started up and that was like very heavy on restaurants and then retail partners. So kept building out our stuff online, but also working with companies like CrowdCow um, for like larger kind of e-commerce business, you know? Cool. What's CrowdCow? I've never heard of that. CrowdCow is a really cool retail partner that we have. They basically source from probably 50 different farms and you can buy direct from like a whole slew of different farms um, through them. So they're kind of like a third-party vendor that represents a bunch of different farms. To retailers, not to end consumers like me. To end, to end consumers, actually. End consumers. Oh, so I can go on CrowdCow and like buy super high quality stuff from farms. Like, Is that where you mostly do all your direct-to-consumer business from? We're doing a lot on pasturebird.com. We do a lot with CrowdCow and then in a smattering of other like more regional style e-commerce brokers too. 
Very cool. Okay. Yeah, so cocktail's really cool. It's worth checking out. I mean, um, lots of pasture-raised stuff on there. Some that's not as well. Lots of great wild fish. They bring in really cool Wagyu um, beef out of Japan. They got some really interesting stuff on there. Well, I'm excited. I'm definitely checking that out. Yeah. Um, okay. So you're, there's like 20 of you living in a 1700 square foot <laughs> place. Like it, At but... what point did you guys like buy your own farm? How many chickens were you making your in-laws grow like in their backyard? Yeah, we probably got up to like 500 chickens a month in the backyard. And, uh, this was like a two acre. I mean, it was a, it was a good sized backyard, but it wasn't that big, you know? Okay. Uh, and there's so many stories from like, we would offer farm tours early on, you know, cause we're always been about transparency I, and like, I bought well, one of your farm tours for my nieces and nephews for Christmas no in 2000. Um, geez, it must've been like 2017 or something. So I don't know where you would have been at that point in time, but not there anymore, but yeah. still, I mean, we've had probably 30,000 people at this point come for in-person farm tours. I mean, we just think it's so important. It's like a game changer. This whole Marine Corps idea of like inspect what you expect. No, there's so much BS that happens on meat packaging, you know, and, and our attributes and label claims and all that, like nothing replaces just coming to the farm for yourself and seeing it. So we've always been about that, but sometimes people would come out and it was like, wait, this is your farm. Like we're in a neighborhood, dude. Like, what do you mean? This is your ranch, you know? And uh, we had cows, we had sheep, we had all this stuff. We're like violating every zoning ordinance in our whole city. And then (laughs) Eventually the zoning guys came and they're like, dude, we think what you do is awesome. We are like customers, but you can't keep doing this like in the middle of town. So we had to go get a real farm eventually, but none of us had any money. That was like a big part of the problem is that we didn't have any money. We'd never raised investor money or anything. So we, we couldn't go buy a farm. You know, we had to go lease something for pretty cheap and kind of take like really bad soil and then start getting it better and better every year. And how'd you guys do that? So we started out on this place. It was an equestrian kind of property. And the lady was just like, yeah, I read about what you guys are doing. I think it's really cool. I I think stewardship and taking care of soil is like really important. And this is back in 2014, 2015. I mean, nobody was really talking about regenerative yet, you know? Yeah. Um, But she was just like, she's an old cattle woman and she thought it was cool what we were doing. So she really bought in. We thought that ranch would last us like five years. And then you know, the story, like six, seven months in, you're like, okay, we've maxed this place out. We need to go find more. And I was out driving around the outskirts of Temecula. And we drove by this huge, like potato farm, just big, beautiful, flat ranch, but it's potatoes, which is the worst crop on the soil. Like they just absolutely extract all the nutrition. They have to fertilize and, you know, synthetic fumigation is basically chemotherapy in the soil. So they just kill every living bacteria in the soil when they do conventional potatoes. It's oh, really God. rough. I had no clue Weird. potatoes were that bad. Potatoes is a rough one. Yeah. And you can only do one potato crop every three years because it's so like detrimental to the soil. Um, okay. But we were driving by it and I was talking to the realtor and I was like, dude, that's what I want. Like, I want that property. He's like, oh, don't bother. You know, like they've been farming potatoes there for 50 years and blah, blah, blah. I just called him and I was like, Hey, I'm Paul, you know, chicken farm. I'm interested in leasing the land. And the guy goes, Oh, it's interesting. You call because we just got out of this board meeting and like, we decided to not farm potatoes anymore. And we're kind of open to leasing or whatever. So they gave us a really good deal on the land. And, um, I actually have a picture I should show you. Will people be able to see if I put pictures up here? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyone who has their video turned on, will be able to see. 
And so for anyone who doesn't, you should turn on your video because Paul has like a loop plane in the background of where he's at at the farm. Right. Well, check this picture out. This is when we first got out to that ranch in um, oh in San Diego gosh. County. And so when we got out there, it was wow. literally like it wasn't soil. It was just dirt. You would step onto this and you could see where it's all crusty and stuff. Yeah. And your boot would go in like 12 to 14 inches probably. Um, this is in the middle of wet season. You can see like barely growing some weeds, you know? Yeah. Um, and basically just started a little better than that, but it, that's essentially what we started with. Um, less than 1% organic matter, 50 something years of like farming conventional potatoes out here, just essentially like, you know, for lack of a better word, like raping the soil of all of yeah. its nutrients, like just extract, extract, extract. Um, and the ranch was like dead. That's why they were done farming potatoes because the cost of synthetic fertilizer had gotten so high to even get a marginal crop out. It was like, they're, it's not worth doing it anymore. So we started putting the poultry on there and rotating poultry and like fertilizing the ground and doing all this cool stuff that now, you know, folks are learning that's possible with responsible, proper animal agriculture, like literally healing the soil. And, that, and now you could see what it looked like last year. It looks even better this year. We've increased the soil organic matter three times, which results in so much carbon sequestration and water holding capacity and just nutrient density of the grasses and of the animals eating the grasses. And it's really beautiful. We see probably 30 or 40 different species of grasses and, you know, what the West would call weeds and flowers. And, um, we, you know, we see deer and bald eagles and hawks and owls and snakes and so much wildlife out there too. I mean, it's, it's literally a different place. It's pretty cool. I mean, it looks like for those who can't see, it looks like a desert before, like an actual mild looking, not even remotely dark and rich desert yeah. sand. <laughs> now it's like totally. fully covered in green. So that's amazing. And wow. Yeah. Crazy. It's fun to be a part of some of our original staff from when we started out there is still there today. And it's like, you know, I'm only there once a week or something at this point. I'm not on the farm every day anymore. I got to go sell all the chicken and do all the business side of it. But the guys that are there every day, it's like, yeah, they just have these awesome stories about finishing the day. Like, I don't know if you ever worked out into dirt, but you get like all this dirt in your nose and your ears and it's just, it's nasty, you know? And now they're just like, oh, it smells so good. It looks so good. Like it's so nice to be in this environment every day. And yeah. it really is. I mean, it's, it's beautiful out there now. And this background is that of that farm you just showed me that. Yeah. Same farm. Out. Exactly. Cool. Yeah. And so, okay. So you raised the 40,000 on Kickstarter and then what, like what happens after that? So we were doing this direct to consumer business regional, mostly focused in SoCal and it's great. Like we actually still have that company. It's called Primal Pastures. It operates mostly around SoCal direct to consumer. That's, that's all it is. Yeah. But we kind of saw this big opportunity for like, you have all these little guys doing pasture raised chicken, probably selling at farmer's markets or direct yep. e-commerce, but then there's this massive gap in the market. And then you go up to, you know, what's called like a free range system. So you had us kind of at like maybe a thousand chickens a week. And then, and then the next smallest guy was kind of like a million chickens a week, you know, and you didn't have anybody filling the demand for kind of this like large scale, regenerative pasture raised chicken thing. And it was just kind of came back to like, uh, we would have loved to do cattle, but we didn't have any money. Cattle super expensive to get into. And we're in Southern California. Grass doesn't grow that plentiful here. Like it's dry and 
it's an amazing climate for chicken. So we said, let's like spin off a second company. Let's raise some investor capital. Let's like try to scale it up big. Let's build large scale automation technology to really like bring pasture raised regenerative food to the masses. Because one of the problems is you go to the farmer's market and it's like four or five times more expensive than if you bought even organic chicken in the store. So it's like, I really believe in this regenerative thing, this pasture raised thing. But if it's, if it's that much more of a premium cost wise, it's never going to have like the impact. And so for me, it came back to this idea of how do we leave it better for the next generation? Like let's build some large scale methodology to do pasture raise and make it more accessible and affordable. So that, that was pasture bird. Like that was the whole genesis of pasture bird. And we wanted to build something to partner with one of the biggest chicken companies in the country. We didn't even know who it would be, but we're like, let's build something that's going to plug in really well to what um, one of these big chicken companies is doing and essentially like help them take this out to retail and take it to the masses. So cool. So tell- yes, we did like an angel round in 2015. We raised a little okay. bit of money, um, started scaling. Things were going really well. So we did another like kind of angel plus round seed round in probably 2017, 2018. And um, we thought we'd have to at least get up to series A, series B until we got one of the bigger chicken companies interested. But around 2018, we started developing what we call the ARC. It's like this automated range coop is what we call it. I'll show you a, a couple more pictures, like kind of the way that we started this whole thing. That's not what I'm looking at in the background, is it? The no. arc is what you're looking at in the background. Oh, okay. actually. Yeah. Yeah. So we started on these really manual houses that you basically, it's like a greenhouse with no floor. Okay. And that's, what's really unique about pasture bird and pasture raised chicken is that the coops are all mobile. So like the birds are living on pasture and then every 24 hours, the coop moves to a new spot. So the birds are always living in this clean, fresh environment where they can forage and peck and scratch and do all like the chicken things. But it was so expensive because we're dragging these greenhouses like manually. I'll, I'll just go back to this picture. You can kind of see them in the background here on the right. They're like these little 700 square foot units that we grab them with a tractor and then we pull it. And it's okay. like, it takes a lot of time. And then we go in with buckets and fill up the feeders. And it's like, yeah, end up spending so up. much money on labor, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. makes sense. You're having to like every day reset an entire coop. Okay. And it's brutal. I mean, it's so expensive. So we started developing a much larger, 10 times bigger and fully automated um, solar powered unit that would be able to essentially like replicate what happens in a conventional house, which is all stationary. Um, this is kind of like, Actually, it's funny because this is considered pasture-raised chicken by many folks in the industry. And it's just, it's literally not, but this is like how chickens are essentially raised 99.999%. This is organic and it's free range. And it's even, some people would call it pasture-raised. I would not, I would call this like outdoor access, you know? Yeah. Uh, But 25,000 birds kind of packed inside of a house. Maybe they have access to the outside or whatever, and it's all stationary. So this brown, I mean, these chickens are all living on their own poop, essentially. Yeah, you know? it's brown. the dirt is brown, for sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, no grass. This is, this is the system that we developed for like the last, probably been working on it for five years. So the way that this works is this is all solar panels on the side. There's like 52 independent drive wheels that all talk to each other. And um, I don't know if you'll be able to see the video moving, but I like, see, yeah. 
Yeah. So these coops actually drive themselves to fresh pasture every day. And so we started doing this and showing this to some different people and it got on some chicken companies radar, like really quickly. They wanted to come out and check it out and see what we're up to. And we had several patents kind of developed on it. Um, and Purdue ended up, Purdue is a large, probably third largest in the U S poultry producer, largest organic kind of by far poultry producer in the U S and they got really interested. They came out in 2018 and they jumped in on a round that we were kind of closing out. And then we, we kind of like just kept in touch with them and they got really excited about this concept of regenerative and they'd already made acquisition of Nyman ranch, which oh, is yeah. doing a really good job with pork. They, they made them. an acquisition of Panorama Beef, which is doing a really good job in pasture-raised beef. And so they're a chicken company at the end of the day. You know, they're like, if we're going to do regenerative, we want to have chicken. And they thought that this really represented the future of poultry production. And so oh, cool. 2019, they acquired our company at a pretty early stage. You know, we were, we were not in retail. We're not doing a ton of sales volume or anything, yeah. but they liked the coop and they liked the movement kind of that whole thing. So they ended up... Um, we, now we've been working with them for two, two and a half years almost. And finally now got it to the point where it's ready to scale and ready to replicate. And um, that's, it's been a lot of fun. It's super cool. This so is what it looks like on the inside as, as you're moving, you know, this is all kind oh, of so the windows mode. even retract. So they have like sunlight and. Yeah. Well, one of the things that people don't realize is like chickens need to be kept warm. You know, one of our ranches, it's like 20 degrees in the morning, in the winter you know, like right now, essentially. So this is all thermostatically controlled. So the sides roll up and down, depending on weather we want the sun coming in. Yeah, for sure. But we also have to balance that with like really cold temps. So, um, yeah, back doors open, sides open, all that. And, uh, it's essentially like, think of it like a portable shade structure. Chickens really like to be their prey animals, right? So they like to be close to their food and water and close to their buddies and inside of the shade. It's not like a cow or a dog that will just wander out like into an open field. That's not a chicken does not feel comfortable in that environment. So in order to do regenerative chicken, you got to move their environment all the time. Um, And that's really, they have this amazing resource, which is their poop. You know, we talk about, we talk about poop a lot, Um, but they're pooping on the ground all day long. So when you can move that across a field, you're essentially like fertilizing that field in the best way. I mean, chicken poop is still revered as like the best fertilizer in the world. I mean, it's better than anything Monsanto has been able to figure out in 30, 40 years. So, (laughs) yeah, this is like amazing, but I mean, so what were you doing before? I know you were a Marine, but what were you doing at the time in which you were living in Newport beach? Yeah, I got back from Iraq and I went into accounting. That's what I studied um, in my undergrad. And no way, you're accounting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my oh, background too. Dang. Yeah. We could geek out tax or audit. <laughs> oh, I lasted like six months. I did a little audit. That was horrible. I liked the tax season better because I could just finish it quick and like move on with my day. But I only was an accountant for a year and then I left the country and moved to South America for three years. So <laughs> learned how to surf. Yeah. Speak Spanish. Yeah. I'm going to interview you pretty soon. I feel like your life is more interesting than mine. No, definitely not. But yeah. Yeah. I thought accounting was really good background. I knew I wasn't going to do it forever, but like audit was cool because you bounce around to a bunch of different companies and you see it from the inside out. And it's been an asset being able to speak finance and accounting like um, throughout this whole thing. So um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't really, I didn't definitely didn't like doing accounting, but I thought 
it was a really good background yeah, for getting for sure. into entrepreneurship, you know? Definitely. And just an appreciation of like numbers and Definitely. how the whole business works. I, I totally agree. Um, well, that's cool. Okay. So you were an accountant and then at what point do you quit your accounting job to pursue the farm full time? Dude. So at one point I still, I don't even know how this worked, but I was, uh, I was a full-time accountant. I was doing my full-time grad school at UCLA and we were starting the farm like all at once. And, and we had our one-year-old yeah. and your first, was, you your first, we had our first. Yeah. And this is all still in Newport and commuting out to the farm, like, you know, 5 a.m. Try to get back for my accounting job at like 8:30, and then go back out and try to feed chickens and everything after work. It was, it was brutal. Honestly, it was like not the smartest. Sometimes you say, "Well, you had to do that to get where you are," and it was like, I don't know, kind of lucky my marriage survived that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My wife was like very <laughs> gracious there, you know. Yeah. Um, it was probably 2013. The business was just absolutely not ready yet to pay a salary or do anything like that. But I was just, I was over the accounting thing and I was ready to go work with my hands and like try to build something, you know, so took out a bunch of, you quit the UCLA MBA, didn't you? You dropped out, right? Yeah. Essentially like got right to the end and then dropped out and slowly kind of chipped in one class at a time kind of thing. It was, it was like a joke. Um, Oh, so you did finish? I, I ha- I'm, I'm still like one class away and I'm just like, I don't even, you do, you, know, you, you start to get farther away from it. You're just like, I don't even want to do this. Right now. Yeah. You already so, got your MBA. You started and sold a business. You're good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, totally. Oh God. Yeah. But that's cool. I mean, to have the guts to even just like walk away from even something like that or any of it, I think that's really, I don't know, pretty cool. There was a really cool entrepreneurial scholarship from a guy who passed away at UCLA. Their family goes and it's called the Larry Wolfen Entrepreneurial Spirit Award. And they award it to like three or four students every year. And they give you 15 grand. And the idea is like, take the summer off your job and go pursue something entrepreneurial, you know? So I did my pitch and like, I won that. And I just told my wife, I was like, dude, I think, I think this is like time to go jump. And between that 15 and just racking up credit cards and moving in with her parents. And like, you know, we made it work for like a year, you know, it was, it was brutal, but I really don't think we would be where we are if it weren't for some of those sacrifices, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I can relate on a lot of levels. I just thankfully didn't have a kid at that point in time because, and I wasn't in business school. I mean, that's just a lot. So you quit. Okay. Then the business grows. You're, and you're in business also. So your wife's brother, Jeff. Yep. Jeff Jeff is married to Bethany from Primally Pure. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with Primally Pure, my favorite deodorant in existence. Um, And, and you, that was the whole crew that was living with the in-laws. Yeah. So him and his wife, me and my wife, um, my wife's parents, and then a couple other family members that were just like, why, why are we all here? But, you know, (laughs) it was also super gracious by uh, my wife's folks to like, let everybody into this 1700 you know square foot house i mean it was absolute chaos there was nine of us and i think one person had a, an actual job like bethany was you know doing chapsticks and like we're like dude these deodorants like they're good why don't we try selling a few on our website kind of thing she's like oh i don't know like you sure and you know sure enough eventually her sales started to pass our sales and we're like okay you got to go get your own website girl like yeah. you're you're killing it you know um <laughs> My father-in-law is like a general contractor. My wife's an interior designer. So everybody was just kind of like in the infancy of their thing. And I mean, it was seven days a week and 
a lot of farm tours and we would do my sister, my other sister-in-law is a really talented chef and Pilates teacher. And so she would do like breakfast and Pilates on the farm. We were just trying to make money any way we could to survive basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Good memories, but I remember in the moment just being like, this is insane. Yeah, get me out of here. So that you lasted how long? And then you guys what moved to Temecula full time, I take it. We're, uh yeah, we were there. We were there for like a year living in the in-laws, and then we went out and eventually got our own place. And that was a big part of like we did that angel round and we were able to give ourselves a small oh, well, it wasn't a big yeah. salary by any means, but it was like somewhat predictable, you know, have a little money coming in every month still not enough to pay off all the credit card debt or anything like that. That didn't happen until the acquisition, you know? Yeah. Crazy. Um, and how many chickens do you guys have now? How many farms do you have? Like where does, where are you? Yeah. So with Purdue, they have a really good presence in California and, um, in Georgia, which are, they have a really big presence in the Northeast, but the climate doesn't really work for producing pasture poultry year round in the Northeast. So we're mostly producing in Georgia and in California, um, we have one farm in California still looking to expand that. And we have three farms going in Georgia. So at any given time, I mean, you could think about probably 80 to a hundred thousand chickens on the ground, you know, at, at, at any given time. But to be honest, that's still tiny compared to anybody in the industry. You know, if you're not doing a million chickens a week, which would be, you know, six, 7 million chickens on the ground, like you're barely even considered a player at that point. So yeah, we're still kind of a it's weird. We're in this in-between where we're like huge for pasture raised chicken in the farmer's market world, but we're tiny compared to kind of retail. like industrial or even yeah. free range retail chicken. And uh, it'll be fun. It'll be, it'll be a crazy next few years while we grow this thing. Yeah. Okay. So talk to me about this. So I get like the jump and like the jump to pasture raised, like I get how you got there. This is like movements exploding. Food Inc. takes off. Like, right. you know, you're all, there's all this cool stuff. But to actually come up with this and patent, like who's the engineer? Like, how are you guys, how did you guys do this? Yeah, it's, it's sure as heck not me. I mean, I've always felt like I kind of had the vision for it. My brother-in-law, Jeff, Bethany's husband, is a kind of hardcore ops guy. So he's okay. all about behind the scenes, making it work and, you know, scheduling and logistics and all that. But we're missing, the missing link was like the super smart brainiac dude. So we hired Dan Cody. Uh, He had formerly managed White Oak Pastures. You're probably familiar with them and Will Harris. They kind of run the regenerative space really well in Georgia. And then he was on a prominent farm, regenerative farm in, in Texas. And he came out for a tour and I kind of just shared my vision for scaling pasture raise and some of my thoughts around automated coop movement. And I threw out the number of like, we eventually want to be doing a million birds a week, you know, and everybody in the pasture space just looks at me like I got something growing out of my forehead when I say that. And when Dan heard that, he looked at me as like, that's literally what I want to do too. So it was this cool moment of both of us really aligned on vision. And he's a PhD biochemist, crazy smart engineer. So we were able to hire him in 2017 and he started work right away on kind of getting the ranch up and running, but then this automated range coop tech and our patents. And, uh, he was really, I would say he was by far the key driver of that whole piece. Um, and he was an, he, he you know, a stockholder and stuff like that too. So it, it has been really fun. He was, you know, for anybody like building a company, you know, he was such a key hire, both Jeff and I look back on that. We we're just like, I don't, 
think this would, it, none of it would have come together without Dan. I mean, he was the missing link for Jeff and I, you know? Yeah. It's interesting. We have like a similar kind of, I know you said you listened to the Mark and I's podcast on Primal, but it's just like a similar kind of thing, like Mark, myself and Rick. And I think without, yeah. you know, well, obviously Mark being probably the most important there, but without like either one, it, there were a lot of either any one of the three of us, there was a lot of like areas where it could have crumbled, you know, me probably contributing the least, but I pulled <laughs> the people together. So someone has to do the fun yeah, stuff. A pretty important job. Yeah. Nobody has to do the sales, marketing and innovation. Um, yeah. The product's it's great, cool. but it doesn't, it's still not going to sell itself necessarily, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's no, really cool. Um, okay. So what, so what now? So you're, you've been acquired and there, how much, how many of these things are you building? Like what's the ambition? Where's the future? Yeah, guys. I mean, we really are. It took us a couple of years to refine the design and get it just right to where we're really comfortable replicating, you know, yeah. and that was part of what I give a lot of props to Purdue. They came in really, really early, you know, so yeah. they had to take a couple of years with us and really develop this. And what was cool about that is we had. For what it's worth, I mean, Purdue really is the best at doing organic chicken. So we had the best classically trained chicken people, I think in the world feeding into the design and, and kind of the build out and all that. So I think we have the best of the conventional industry combined with the best of pasture. So we're like ready to scale now. Um, my dream still, I mean, and produce on board with this is we want to go to a million birds a week. We want to see prices really come down within pasture raised and regenerative. It's not just affordability. It's also like accessibility. You know, I, I think it's not my dream. Yeah. I, I want to work with Erewhon. I want to work with like the best retailers, but I also want to see this in Trader Joe's someday. Like I want to see it like you guys, I want to see it accessible at the places where the masses like really do their shopping too. So the dream hasn't really changed at all. It's about getting birds on a pasture, healing, you know, healing ground, healing soil. One of the most exciting parts of this is as we've gone large scale, this idea of integrating cattle crop and poultry together becomes possible. So like mm. this farm that I was showing you just a little bit ago, um, he does, he does cattle production. He, he grows hay for his cows. And so every year he essentially had to come through. This is one of our Georgia farmers. He had to go through a synthetic fertilizer and like put that down to grow enough hay to feed his cows. And when we started raising pasture poultry, essentially replace the synthetic fertilizer with the chicken program. So the chickens are doing all the fertilizing he needs. So he's been completely off of synthetic fertilizer for like 18 months and wow. he's making more money doing the chickens and yeah, growing you can sell the chickens yeah. instead of just buying something that's an input that you don't get anything out of. Interesting. So to so me, cool. like the future of food is this integration of cat cattle and chickens and cropland. It's like, for far too long, probably 60 years, we've separated the two where it's like, oh, the corn grows here and the animals grow here, but we're going to harvest the corn to feed the animals. It's like this crazy backwards um, thing. I think the way that God really designed animals and plants to work together is like animals, you know, feed plants the same way plants feed animals. So we need to reintegrate the two. And like, I think there's large scale solutions here for growing corn and growing, you know, soybeans and growing all the staple crops in integration with animals in this like really re regenerative way. So I think that's what we're super excited about. Like how do we change the entire food system over the next five to 10 years and like show what's possible at scale, you know? 
Yeah, that's awesome. I love it. And do you have access to like more land now that you're partnered with Purdue? Like where what do they want to do? Yeah, I mean, we're we're looking at both. So we'll do some stuff on what we call company-owned farms where um, you know, we'll control, but then also contracting or partnering with you know, local folks around our processing plant that want to have four coops, six coops, you know, they're going to call us up and we'll basically provide them with the chicks and the feed. And then they'll have uh, these coops and they can raise the birds out and we'll pay them a really, really killer price. So it really feels like a win-win for, you know, small family growers and, and kind of for the consumer too, because you're gonna be able to get these things at prices you've never been able to before. It's amazing. And so how does primarily or primal pastures then like where's the difference what's the difference between pasture yeah primal pastures has always been kind of like your local classic direct to consumer only and they'll do all five species so they're doing pasture poultry you know pasture raised beef pasture raised pork pasture raised lamb wild local you know sustainably caught fish they even do some stuff with hunted venison, like wild venison, but it's all just direct to consumer. So they'll never be in retail. They're not going to be you know, selling to chefs or food service or anything like that. And it's not meant to be large scale either. It's really craft, small scale. And I love that business. We're like super proud of that business. They're doing some really innovative things locally too, but they're focused on their neighborhood, you know? Right. Got I think it. that's cool. Like I actually think it's just as important as what Pashford yeah, is doing. Absolutely. Like you need small local independent farms to like feed communities. That's amazing. But the reality is like to change the world, I think we need big ag to be doing things better and to be doing things differently. So for me, it's just like a blessing to kind of be involved with both. I mean, that's, that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. How I want to just go back on this because I'm curious now you said you had the Lyme disease. How did you get over the Lyme disease? Yeah. I mean, uh, remember back in the day, like Rob Wolf, Paleo Solution, Mark, oh, yeah. like all the OGs. I mean, I really went strict paleo and like felt like a kid after a couple of weeks. I mean, it was every all the classic brain fog and fatigue and back pain and knee pain and all that. I mean, in the Marine Corps, we call it vitamin M, which is Motrin, you know, just like painkillers all the time. Uh, yeah. It's not so good, but uh, just change in diet was like, it was like everything. I haven't had really those same symptoms ever since, you know, and I've refined more. I'm not crazy strict paleo anymore, but probably 98% paleo and really focus on getting a lot of bone broth and organ meats and, you know, high quality across the board, regenerative food. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really haven't experienced the Lyme stuff for probably seven years. Wow. That's amazing. Um, okay. What are you most excited about besides this amazing movable coop that you've invented? What are you most excited about in health and wellness these days? Oh man, that's a good question. I think this regenerative stuff is really cool, but the reality is it's being bastardized already. It's like a major buzzword. Everybody's just saying it. Like if you know how to spell it, you put on your package kind of thing. I actually think the future is in uh, nutrient density, um, even more than regenerative. I have this hypothesis that like your average mom or dad, you know, they're just trying to feed their kids the best food possible. Do I care how much carbon you sequestered? Probably a little bit, but like not enough to spend a bunch of extra money. But like, if you can show me that, you know, like our chickens lab tested three times higher omega-3, 50% higher, you know, vitamin A and E, like, 
NADH, all these micronutrients are four times higher, 12 times higher. I think that that will probably be enough to get people really excited and like thinking more about their food. So I actually think the next wave after regenerative is kind of run its course will be this idea of like nutrient density and testing food for, for nutrient quality. Oh, I uh, love that. Yeah. So I think that that's would definitely coming, that, motivate you know? me to make, I mean, I'm already motivated. I already buy your stuff, but I, that would motivate me even more for sure. I think. Yeah. We're trying to lean into it. We're trying to do a lot of lab testing and publish stuff and compare it to, you know, we're part of Purdue. So it's not like we're saying free range sucks or organic sucks, but yeah, let's show the differences, not only in how we're raising the birds, but like, what's the impact on the health of that, of that product, you know? And I actually think the vegans and vegetarians and all this plant-based stuff, like a lot of ranchers think that that's the bad guy. I happen to think it's a lot of the same customers um, that are buying beyond that are probably buying pasture bird too, or buying grass fed. I mean, they're just 95% of those folks are just trying to do right by the environment and do right by their own health. I don't think they're largely well-intentioned conscious folks that are just trying to do the right thing. But the scary thing is when you start to look at the nutrient density profiles of the lab grown meat and the fake meat, I mean, it is horrible. It's yeah. like, it's like so bad. And yeah, factory farming. Like you look at some of the kind of factory farming metrics around nutrient density too. And it's scary. What's the the declines in, you know, and when I say factory farming, that's animals and plants. Like the way that we're growing corn, that's factory farming. The way yeah. that we're growing oranges, Patagonia, uh, Yvonne Chenard kind of hosted this study that compared the nutrient density of an orange in the 1950s to now. And it was something like nine times higher vitamin A um, 50 years ago or in the 1950s. And it is now it's like, you understand what that does to your gut health, to your overall, like to all these, and that's just vitamin A. Like imagine it's all driven from healthy soil. So it's like, why should you care about some other farmer's healthy soil at the end of the day? Cause the food that it produces will be different in, in its nutrient profile. Yeah. Like, no doubt about it. And there hasn't been a ton of studies on that done yet, but there will be like, trust me, there will be. There, it's coming. I like that. I'm yeah. excited. I look forward to that day. Um, sure. So what does like a day look like? Like how, how much of a farmer are you versus a businessman? What does a day in the life look like? Definitely more business, but like, it'll be funny because I'll be sitting at a coffee shop working and talking about how many chickens we're harvesting next week. And <laughs> I always forget, you know, you get used to it after a while and people will be like, dude, what the hell are you talking about, man? Like it's a, it's a weird dynamic, but no, I'm, I'm on, on our big farm, probably once a week or so I'm on our, we have a smaller farm here. It's kind of like a, um, prototype style farm. I'm, I'm here almost every day working. I just like to work outside. I prefer to not be in the office too much. Like, um, you know, we're right here in town. So I try to get a workout in around lunch, like still pretty into the CrossFit thing and, um, spend a ton of time with family. You know, we have, 25 folks in our family, you know, Bethany and then Jeff, and, um, they have five brothers and sisters on their side of the family and everybody lives essentially in our little town. So it's like 12 little cousins out and they're all running around the farm all the time. It's, it's a pretty dang good life. I'd say we're, we're really blessed, you know? Yeah. Sounds like it, man. I love that. It's like it's the nice. dream. Yeah. Um, a lot of family meals. We measure the size of our family by how many chickens it takes to feed everybody. So we're up to like six now or something or six chicken family. 
Is it chicken every night or are you guys no. mixing in other things over there? It's probably, it's definitely meat every meal. I'd say we're like, we're not a carnivore diet family, but there's a lot of pasture raised meat that gets thrown around. So it's, yeah. uh, we, we raise beef cattle too. We raise chicken. You know, we know exactly where all of our pork and seafood. I mean, we know who's catching the fish. We know exactly how they're caught. I mean, we're pretty into the whole meat thing. There's a lot of barbecues and we're in SoCal. So it's like, you can grill 12 months out of the year. That's actually what got me fired up to talk to you guys is because we're, I would say not mildly obsessed. Like we're obsessed with the, with the Buffalo sauce. Oh yeah. The Every sauce. family meal, like the Buffalo sauce is prominently displayed front and center. And we're, we're like, uh, all the kids are fired up on it. Everybody's uh, fired up on it. You guys just need to make it in like a five gallon bucket for us. And we'd, yeah. we'd be good. Well, it's going into Costco. It's in Costco. So you can buy bigger, bigger. Right. Containers. I know the two pack, right? Two packs, yeah. Yeah. We'll look it up. We'll send you a bunch of buffalo sauce. We have a new buffalo sauce, a jalapeno buffalo sauce. It's like a oh wow, beer, and that's a big one. But the buffalo sauce is like crack. It's really good. So it's so right. good. Yeah. We're hoping um, to do. We're hoping to launch some kind of like a recipe and kind of do the whole thing with this podcast and teach people how to. It's so easy, you know. It's just like it's great as a finishing sauce or a dipping sauce, but. We love to throw it on chicken right at the end on the grill and then and then use it as a dipping sauce and like it's just the best. Yeah, I'm I'm all about that. Anything I can like throw in the crock pot with some chicken thighs and I have dinner later, I'm sold. So I yep. totally agree. <coughs> okay. Um, any weird health hacks you're doing that most people aren't doing? Um, right before you called, I was eating. Raw, not raw. I was eating this beef liver product. So I'm, I'm not an investor in this. I don't even really know the guy or anything, but I'm really into this. Oh, shoot. Here we go. This product. So it's just um, beef liver and, and salt. And the guy like dehydrates these crisps or like chips. Um, they're really weird tasting. I'll be honest when you first get going on it. But if you commit to it for like two or three days, I always had kind of a hard time getting organ meats into my diet. I just, I don't love them and I don't get around to cooking them a ton. So for me, I just keep those in my bag all the time. I, you know, eat them throughout the day. And, uh, it's been great. I mean, it feels like you just talked about crack, but it feels like you're on crack. Like you eat a few of them and the focus just goes crazy. And it's like five cups of coffee. It's great. I love it. And what, um, what is the brand of that? Is it just called beef liver? No, the guy's called carnivore carnivore Aurelius. Okay. He's all direct to consumer, but um, I really love the product. And like I said, I'm not, I don't know the dude. I'm not an investor or anything, but um, you found I it. really like it. Yeah. Oh, I'm on a subscription for it. Yeah. yeah. I'm always trying to figure out how to get my kids to eat more. Like liver pate was both my kids, like first food, but I'm trying yeah. to figure out how to get like more of that into the diet now as you have toddlers because it's so important and it's hard. It's hard to I do. I know. We did a beef liver or a chicken liver snack stick. So it was like 80%. Um, breast and thigh, but then it was 20% liver, heart, and gizzard. And like, you just didn't taste it at all. We sweetened it with honey, you know, in a, that was such a good product. And people were like, this is so great. Like I'm finally getting my kids to eat liver. Like it's awesome. We love this product. And then, you know, how weird stuff is sometimes, but we ended up having this crazy issue where it was too much moisture content so the pack and they like didn't dehydrate enough and literally the entire production run went bad and we couldn't sell any of it and then 
the manufacturing facility was like, oh, we're not making that again. You know, we just lost our shirt on it. So we need to bring that back. That was a great product. Yeah, you do need to bring that back. I want that in my life. Or like people, some, one of my farmer's market guys in Southern California would sell like beef boost. So it had like the liver in the ground beef. And then I would use that to make like tacos or burgers or whatever. And you couldn't really taste it. And I felt better about getting some of that. I feel that. like that's the best. Yeah. I used to recommend people try to make that. Primal Pastures actually sells that product. We eat it religiously yeah. too, where it's like either 90, 10 or 80, 20, just enough where you don't really taste yeah. it at all. Yeah, yeah. It's that's a great way to do it. Yeah. That's amazing. And then bone broth too. I mean, Bone broth, I feel like the ship kind of sailed and there's such a saturated market in the pre-made bone broth, but like, dude, just save your bones. If you have an instant pot or crock pot, like throw the bones in with a you know carrot and a stick of celery and an onion and just let it go for eight hours. And like, it's the cheapest by far. It's the best bone broth that you'll ever had. And that's literally how you extract like the nutrients out of that product. And it's where you get all your gelatin from and like, yeah. Your kids are into that, then great. If not, you know, we top rice with bone broth. We'll top all kinds of stuff or just make soup with the bone broth as a state as, as as the stock. So there's lots of different ways to get bone broth, but you have to do it. And I think anything bone broth-wise, if you make it at home, it's just it's always better. Yeah. Especially better than the shelf stable stuff. I'm not crazy yeah. about the shelf stable. I like the broth. epic, but if I'm gonna buy it, like the epic in the glass jar. I know. So nice. I know. Yeah. So nice. I can't do that. The, even the frozen, I'm like, this was like poured into plastic when it was hot. Like, why? Wow, I don't know. I don't know. And I get it. Trust me. I totally get the production challenges and glass bottles. So expensive. And, and the Epic broth is priced out for most people. It's like a small amount, you know, I know. so I use it. Honestly, you make it at home, get a couple of huge mason jars and it's a, it's a fraction of the price of buying quality bone broth, yeah, you know, and it's, it's delicious and good for you. This is a good tip. Okay. My last question I ask everyone, but what is something most people don't know about you? Mm. Um, so I said, I was a college athlete and one of my sports was pretty cool and pretty primal. I threw the javelin in college, but one of my other sports that I was a, I was an all American in was really lame. I was, a I was a top ranked um, speed walker in college. Stop it. Race walker. Yeah. And so I could walk two miles in like 14 or 13 minutes or something. Stop like it. Yeah. How did you get into that? This is fast. So embarrassing. I thought that yeah. was just like something, I don't know, people did at the mall, like in the winter in the Midwest or something. That's the only time it should ever be done. It's a, it's like the darkest sport in the world. How did you get into this? So I was on the track team. And that was fun. It was a very like diverse global team from all over the place. And the sport of race walking is a real Olympic sport, but in the U S it's like, nobody does it. So this guy from team USA was going around to track meets and trying to get people interested in the sport. So he came when we were all sitting at lunch with the track team. And I was like, I was like 240 pounds at the time, huge, you know, javelin buff dude. And, uh, he's like, yeah, we're going to do this race walking clinic. And then we're going to have a race afterwards. And, we were just joking around. We basically like dared each other into it. And so I borrowed one of my like 110 pound track buddies singlets. It was like team Mexico. It was like absurd looking, um, tight shorts and, and tank top and stuff. Okay. I went out there for this class and we were just joking around. It was just like a complete this is joke. Like a common theme in your life. These like yeah, jokes that turn into real things. It's a problem. Yeah. Okay. So this guy from Team USA, I'm like messing around. This guy pulls me aside and he's like, he's like, (laughs) he's like, hey, Paul, I just got to tell you, I mean, you have some of the best 
natural talent I've ever seen in my life. And I'm like, oh, like, <laughs> come on, God, like you could have made me good at like basketball or football, but no, <laughs> race walking is like my calling in life. So I went into the race and I was just waving to people and like spinning around, but I qualified for like national championships in my first race, just screwing around, like first time ever doing it. And then trained for a few more weeks and like got invited to Team USA. And it was just nonsense. So I, at one point in my life, I had to decide between Team USA race walking or the Marine Corps. I was like, there's not too many people making that decision point in their life right now. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely <laughs> not. And you chose the Marine Corps, I take it. I did. I went Marine Corps. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that was the right decision. I, I know. Like I know. Could have been a prominent race walker representing yeah. the country. God, I didn't even know that was a thing. This is like one of my most interesting answers to this question. I, I really enjoyed that one. Well, this was awesome. Thank you so much. Let everyone know where they can find you and Pasturebird and all the things. Yeah, just, I mean, we're everywhere, pasturebird.com. Um, another thing I always like to throw out. So we're like huge believers in the local food movement too. So we're part of a big group, 800, 900 different pastured poultry producers. So you know, we'd love to have you buy our stuff, but we'd also love check out getrealchicken.com. Okay. And that will kind of give you like a national map of where different really good local producers are at. So, you know, when you can buy local, buy pasture raised, but you know, we're, we're trying to fill that gap for, you know, the folks that either can't or want to buy it from a store. Love it. And the other one you were telling me about earlier where I can find other cool farm stuff was, what was the name of that one? Proud Cow. Yeah. Proud Cow. Proud okay. Cow check is that a great out. resource. Primal Pastures is another great resource yeah. if you're around California. Carnivore Aurelius, shout out. That's the beef liver strip. Yeah. So I got all primal kinds pure, of resources. Your sister in law. Yeah. And, and Primal Pure. Yeah. You need an awesome it. skincare product. You have everything. This is great. Well, thank you so much. It was great to chat with you and keep up the good work. Same to you. Thank you. Talk again soon.